No Jumper, coolest podcast in the world. And today, I'm very, very pleased to have one of the greats, but arguably the great. He will certainly arguably argue the great. <laughs> Phil Helmuth is in the building. Phil, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. What can I complain about? Yeah, man. It's, it's amazing having you in here because normally, you know, I do so many interviews and none of them touch on poker. And in the back of my mind, you know, there's like a little part of me that's still running through the hand that I busted out with last Sunday playing tournaments and stuff like that. And today I get to actually uh, marry really like two of my main passions in life. I heard you have some poker skills. Uh, you know, I don't got the live read thing that you got going on. Whatever that is in your brain that just lets you see into people's souls. <laughs> the weird, some sort of weird brain thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, I have to before I don't want to like get outed later in this conversation, but I learned to play Hold'em from your book in approximately the year 2003. Oh, uh, play poker like the pros. Yes. And that was a New York Times bestseller. Now, I had mm. a lifetime goal. And this is my book, Positivity, where, I, you know, it's 70 minutes long. Mm. You know, Tony Robbins tells people to buy my book in his advanced seminars. It's crazy. I'm just a poker player. Write a book with eight life tips, and Tony Robbins tells people to buy my book. Gave me a nice jacket blurb on this book. But, you know, I wrote down, you know, a, a lifetime goal to be the greatest poker player of all time. But also on that list was to write a New York Times bestseller, which, I mean... You know, I have the best best grade I ever had in English class was a C. Right. So, so then, you know, my first book, um, Play Poker Like the Pros, becomes a New York Times bestseller. You bought it. I bought you it. You won money using it. I may have shoplifted it. <laughs> take me back to... I still got paid. Take me back to where you were at at that time in your poker career. Because now it's like we're very used to seen you just out here dominating shit for all these years but at that time i'm sure things seemed maybe a little less certain poker being huge seemed a lot less certain in uh, those early 2000s where were you at in your life when you wrote that book i was crushing it i mean it was pretty cool i uh, i look back in between 2000 january 2000 and like 2002 i made like 50 final tables in three years i was wow. just like i was just dominating it felt like poker and uh, that was a pretty cool time um you know i knew that I knew that it was the right time for a strategy book. Mm. I didn't know how long it was going to take for me to write the thing. <laughs> I mean, I, and I didn't even know if I could write it. Um, I sold it to HarperCollins, and then, uh, you know, I was writing 1,500 words a day. Mm -hmm. And that's what I, uh, one day I wrote 6,000 words. I, I literally couldn't see straight the rest of the day. There was, like, something over my eyes for, like, a day and a half, two days. I went back, and about 3,000 of the words weren't that good. Mm. So you know what, let's just stick to 1,500, 2,000 words a day. Um, <clears throat> put it out there and then I got lucky. Somebody held the book up and on ESPN and said, hey, I read Phil Helmuth's book on ESPN. And that made it <laughs> I explode? I had only played seven card stud, I'd never played seven card stud low and now I'm at the final table with these six legends. He, he cashed for like 20000 Boom, next week, New York Times bestseller list wow. for four of the five next weeks, which was a lifetime goal. Didn't see it coming uh, with, with a strategy book. Right. And uh, so, I mean, that was a great moment. I still remember I was in L.A. Uh, I still remember when they called me. I, I love the Lowe's Hotel. I stay there a lot in Santa Monica. And uh, I just walked out and picked up a phone call from New York. And they're like, Phil, you're, where are you? I'm like, at the Lowe's Hotel. All right, we're sending you a bottle of Dom. Your book just hit the New York Times bestseller list. And so of the lifetime goals I wrote down in 1987, I hit most of them. And that was one of the that was that was a pretty cool one. Mm. Um, 
Was there a sense that you were giving away the sauce a little bit too much at that time? <laughs> that like maybe you, you know, I'm, I'm sure that the average player was so bad at that time that it was a very different landscape in terms of outthinking them. Think about it, Adam. If everybody comes into poker and has a bad experience their first few times, they're never going to come back. Mm. So I thought, let me teach everybody how to play great basic strategy, number one. Mm. I didn't write that book for the advanced stuff. I mean, I figured I'm going to sell a lot more copies if I write it for the public. I protect the public, Mm. right? And then do so protecting the game as well. Right. And then, uh, you know, and so people could read, hey, this is all about patience. You can only play like 12% of the hands. You Mm. play a lot of poker. Mm. You know you start playing 50% of the hands, your chips don't last long. No. And so I didn't want that. I didn't want people coming in figuring it was blackjack. Mm. And so they could read my book. It was a great primer on how to play correct, especially basic strategy. And I probably made a lot of people a lot of money and protected a lot of people. And I'm sure it was good for the game. And it was certainly good for my lifetime goals, too. Do you, at that time, were you envisioning a future in which you would be doing things outside of just playing poker every day? Because I'm sure there was a big, long stretch in your life where that's all you wanted to do. But I think in a lot of ways, that book was what really started to turn you into a a machine that was going to be a lot bigger than, than just being you know a, a computer program that sits at a table and uh you know <laughs> makes plays all day which i feel like that's that's where a lot of poker players get after a while is they feel like maybe i'm meant to do something bigger than just executing this strategy all day yeah i mean i knew i knew that i knew that like this book you know i felt like i waited to write this book mm. eight life tips when i wrote my autobiography poker brett as I was writing it, I felt like uh, Ayn Rand, I'm not anywhere near her league as a writer or a, a thinker, but just the process that she used when she wrote Atlas Shrugged and then wrote her book on, you know, basically capitalism, one could argue. Mm. You know, very interesting stuff. I read that. And so as I read my book, I was like, wow, I, I really want to get these eight life tips out there. I wanted to get them out in 2004, 2005. And I said, I'm going to wait. The minute that I finished the autobiography... For the first time in my life, I was more concerned about mortality Mm. because I said, this book is going to change people's lives. This book and everybody that reads this book, it changes their life. And I said, this is really important that I get what I've learned out to the world. Mm. You know, you're always in the right place at the right time is the subtitle. Mm. And uh, and it was super important that I get that out there. So the minute I finished, you know, uh, Poker Brat, which was 145,000 words mm. and took forever to write. I told my wife, Sonny, if something happens to me, I want you to promise you get this book out. Mm. And so I put it out on Amazon. I spent four or five months and literally had the book out within six months of, you know, now I haven't done anything since then. Um, I probably should have written a book during the pandemic. I was playing a lot of high stakes poker online instead, mm. made a lot of money. Money is money. I'm always going to have a lot of money. So, is it always going to be hard for you though to separate your time between writing and playing? Yeah, I mean, because one is mega familiar. It's easy to you. It's immediately profitable, and the other one takes a lot of self control to sit there and make yourself do it. You know, you're obviously probably more seasoned as a as a poker player than a writer. Absolutely. And you know, then what you were talking about earlier, the way my life kind of exploded and changed directions. In 1997, I told myself, I want to be with this wife and I want to be there for my kids. Mm. So I'm going to start doing business stuff because in poker, what are you going to make a million, two million a year? But Mm. in business, you can make a billion dollars. And I knew this back in 97. And so I kind of started segueing 
towards business, I started the process then. There weren't a lot of projects for me to engage in. I didn't have the right network. I didn't really have the right tools. Mm. But as time passed and I learned and learned and learned and learned, now I find myself on 14 advisory boards, right? Um, you know, we're launching our own, uh, you know, we did three SPACs last year, mm. all of them priced. You know, if you look at Rush Street Interactive, uh, of which I have millions of dollars in stock in that one, I brought that company into our SPAC. So a SPAC, you just go to New York and you say, hey, listen, you go to the stock exchange and you raise $290 million and you say, hey, trust us, put your money in a 10, we're going to find a company. Right. So I found the company. And so that was a couple million dollar bonus for me. Um, and it's been an amazing Rush Street. I don't know when this, when this podcast is going to come out, but Rush Street's up three points the last two days. And going crazy, there's rumors we're going to get bought. So for me, that's big money every day, and it's kind of exciting. Um, but, you know, uh, so I have the SPACs. I'm involved with another one. I raised $5 million from my friends there quickly. Hmm. And so, you know, we're talking about doing our own VC firm, and I'm talking about doing my own um, uh, another firm. And so... I've been really busy, um, but but I love it. And listen, Adam, what can I do? I mean, what can I do? You know, I care about tournaments where I can make history, mm -hmm. right? I don't want to spend, so I already spent two months playing in Las Vegas for the World Series of Poker. To me, those count. Mm -hmm. uh, the World Poker Tour, those count. I'm in town to shoot some World Poker Tour stuff. I write the scripts and then I and then I do it. But to me, I want to play meaningful history-making poker. Hmm. And then you know, I mean, and then so that the knock on me is, oh, I'm not playing like the poker masters is going on right now. I'm not playing in that. But I'm having a lot more fun, you know, doing the business stuff. And uh, you know, and and you know, I can see now that I can become a billionaire. You're not going to become a billionaire playing 25k tournaments. No. <laughs> no. It, it is funny, though, how you get held to that standard of you not playing enough of these big buy-in tournaments when, I mean, it's pretty obvious that if you were to do the math that it's, like, not really the best use of your time. Even if you are the best player in the field, it's just not really a best, the best use of your time, right? Exactly right. Even if, even if you know, and listen, these guys come to me. I mean, Negreanu attacked me. Daniel Negreanu, uh, poker Shout out player. To Daniel. Yeah, and he attacked me, you know, saying, hey, listen, uh, that I'm not one of the all-time greats or some, something ridiculous like that. What well, was good for me because what happened was all these poker players in the middle that, you know, half the time they root, you, half the time you root against an all-time great. Look at Tom Brady or you – know, so you just, it's just a natural, normal thing, right? And plus, with me, you get the bonus of me going off and throwing shit. Right. <laughs> you know? But I think that even the most seasoned, new-age GTO pros will acknowledge that – there is something very special about what you're doing, even if it's not the way that they would typically play. There's clearly something going on that gives you a big ass edge. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and I think I've earned the right to be called the greatest of all time in poker today in 2021. And I probably can claim that another four or five years and then maybe somebody passes me. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I have 15 world championships. To me, the only way I could become the greatest was to win World Series of Poker tournaments and other meaningful tournaments. And I won the most of them by far. It's mm -hmm. not even close. And so, you know, so Negreanu attacking me was good for me because all the players, everybody in poker defended me and said, wait a minute, Phil is the all-time great. What are you talking about? And then Daniel changed his attack to not the greatest poker player in the world today. Well, you know, there's four or five really great players out there that I respect. And, you know, I'd like to think that I'm as good as they are, but I'm not going to go around saying I'm the best player in the world today 
I have to prove that, you know, and uh, and I think still by winning worlds by by doing better at World Series of Poker than everybody else this year and next year and the year after, that kind of proves it. Mm, for sure. But okay, then we're jumping all over the place here. But when I saw Daniel, I don't mind. I like no, it. That's fine. But when I saw Daniel, like I, I have to admit that last year seeing him really put that much time into his heads up game was really fascinating. Seeing him like actually really elevate and and be able to take on some of the best heads up players. What it, what does getting better at poker look like for you now? How often are you studying? How often are you sending somebody a hand to review? Because I feel like for a lot of us where, you know, I, I don't use solvers, but the people that I study with, they use solvers. So I'm just very used to thinking of poker in a certain way. And I think for a lot of us, it's kind of hard to imagine Phil Hellmuth inquiring about a hand because you seem very, very confident in all your decisions. Okay, that's fair. I, mean, I think, you know, uh, do I have supreme confidence? Uh, not supreme confidence. You'd be surprised that, you know, um, <clears throat> you'd be surprised that my ego is not as big as people think. Mm. I've been forced to go out there and say I'm the greatest because I was attacked by another great player. And so I don't want to be doing that every day. Mm. I don't want to be on the show saying that, but, but I feel like I've also earned that title. But, so, you know, when you talk about solvers and GTO, I mean, really there's a huge percentage of people that's doing that right now. And then to me, what's more interesting is figuring out if they're going to do this, how can I do that? Mm. So if an era comes along and they're playing way too many hands and they're going crazy, like we saw in 03, 04, 05, 06, right? Then I was playing super, super, super tight mm. because there's nothing you can do, but show them the best hand. And hopefully your ace king beats the ace queen or the ace jack. And you have a lot of chips and you can go ahead and, and make some deep runs. And then the eras changed, right? And then everybody went to super tight for a while and raising smaller amounts. And then I started going crazy and doing a lot of raising and re-raising. To me, the ultimate is being a counterpuncher, using their own strategies against them. Um, in regards to studying poker, I do talk to Mike the Mouth Mattiso and Brian Cantu. And it's kind of funny. Some of the other players chuckle. Some of the some of the players chuckle when they hear that. I was imagining some of our audience laughing at that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what they what they what they're missing is two brilliant poker minds that no matter what else you want to say about them, they really have a lot to contribute in the most advanced discussions about how to play No Limit Hold'em. And in specific, Mike the Mouth Mattiso, you know, was probably the best Omaha 8 or better player in the world, arguably, in tournaments and cash games. And he has an unbelievable record to prove it. So I can learn from him there. Um, and so occasionally I'll invite other people into my network. Um, I mean, I'll ask questions from other great players because they ask me questions. Mm. So, you know, if I'm trying to learn how to play, you know, uh, low ball, I was talking to a couple of the best, uh, you know, triple draw players in the world who taught me a few things mm. just in, in a brief discussion. And so, you know, I mean, I think I have access to the best players in the world in each game. And then and they have access to me. I'm obviously one of the best in Hold'em. And then it's a matter of, you know, figuring out. So, I mean, yeah, I do call people and I do ask about hands. You can't. It's not. But I do think that I understand uh more maybe about different strategies than most people because I've been you know questioning how to play no limit hold'em perfectly since 1984 mm. now just because you studied something for a long time doesn't mean you're good but I have but obviously I've won in all eras so you know you have to adjust and you know you have to to be able to adjust to the era and understand what they're doing definitely is there any small part of you that 
sees the level of technicality that Daniel took upon himself to really study uh, Heads Up, and that is a little bit like, you know what, I want to fully immerse myself in that. I want to get a team of these sort of new age coaches to tell me about what my frequency should be and everything like that, or is that just not, is that too far from why you started playing poker? No, I mean, I, I, I brought Daniel his original set of coaches. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, through my agent. I thought, these guys are geniuses when it comes to heads up. Mm. But I checked with them. I spent just two hours talking to them, and I basically agreed with everything that they said. Mm. And I said, hey, I sent him to my agent. The reason I sent him to my agent, Brian Balspo, is we're thinking about setting up a site because truth always sells. Mm. Right. Truth always sells. That's why, you know, my book, Play Poker Like the Pros, has sold so many copies. You know, that's why I think I'm going to sell a million copies of this. Truth sells. And so especially when people want to use those truths to improve themselves, to become better. And so I kind of brought Daniel as coaches in a roundabout way. And uh, and so but I already knew everything they were preaching. Mm. Right. And so Daniel tried to take it to the next level. And you have to ask yourself. Daniel Negreanu, who's, you know, one of the maybe three or four most talented poker players on the planet Earth. Did he get away too far from his reading abilities, right, Mm. in order to just use math? And then, you know, and then after insulting me and and talking down to me, we played three heads-up matches, you know. uh, As you probably know, with the first one for 50, second one for 100, third one for 200,000, I swept him. I won all three. Well... I was using my reading abilities. Mm. I think Daniel might have performed a little bit better uh, using his reading abilities. Now, Daniel since then has won a couple of big titles in the last few months. And I, and I, I think he's one of the all-time greats. But sometimes I wonder if he couldn't be greater if he trusted his reading ability above the math. Mm. For sure. Is there... Is, is there part of you, like, like how much do you feel like you're giving up in terms of your edge when you are playing online? Like, I, I know a couple of people playing these sort of, like, app-based games with you and everything, and you guys play what kind of sticks? Yeah, I mean, so the app-based games I made about one point, uh, what did I make? About 1.4 million on one of the apps. Wow. And, uh, and yeah, you know some of the guys I play poker with. Uh, you play with some of those guys. Yeah, yeah. So one of those games was a ginormous game that I started with my billionaire friends. And you're playing what, like 500, 1,000, 200 200 blinds. But when you're playing Potlum in Omaha, it's pretty easy to win 100,000 in one night, right? Right. And then the other game, and we also played Hold'em. The other game was uh, I started was just a 5-10-20 game. And I brought a bunch of, you know, the Chicago billionaires in. I call them billionaires. Most of them are. uh, And I brought them in and I brought all my friends in, you know, that that aren't with my, you know, my number with kind of my my best friend group that I play with long term in Silicon Valley. Right. And uh, and so that ended up being a pretty good group. Other people brought other people in. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people that, you know, you look at Mike the Mouth Mattis, he's, he's won 500,000 that game, I think, now, or 550. Wow. And so that game, then we also started playing 10, 20, 40, and then the game got better. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, all of a sudden we have just, it's a really fun game. It's a little crazy. The last three months I, I barely played um, uh, in the game because I've been doing a lot of business stuff. I find the business stuff compelling and, and fun. Mm. And, you know, these young entrepreneurs, if I can help them out, you know, by raising money, you know, from my non-VC network, including a bunch of athletes, you know, it's pretty cool, mm. you know, when these athletes are investing with the young founders. And so when you're putting in all that time playing poker, like, like the way it is for me is like, if I were to stay home and 
play five or ten thousand dollars worth of buy-ins and tournaments that day instead of coming in here i know i'm gonna have a lot of fun well maybe if i lose i'm probably not gonna have as much fun but i know that if i come in here it's like a much better business decision you know i could definitely make more money making content doing brand deals etc cetera, etc cetera. And that kind of keeps me from playing too much poker because it feels irresponsible. Are you kind of at that point where it sort of feels like this is me indulging my addiction, doing something I love is super pleasurable, but it's clearly not the most advantageous thing I could be doing? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. I, I think I stopped thinking of it in those terms. Mm-hmm. I think when I thought, you know what, I, I have enough money. It doesn't matter anymore. No one really has enough money, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know... Um, I felt like, all right, I don't have to worry about money ever again, you know, and that takes a long time to get to that point. And uh, be careful what you're hearing out there, because when I say I don't have to worry about money anymore, uh, that implies I could get reckless. I can't get reckless. I don't want to get reckless. I've been very conservative, but I've been very blessed financially. Right. And then at that point, I kind of just do what I feel like doing. Right. So, um, if I feel like playing poker and I played a lot of poker, I was stuck at home for three months or five months or six months like everybody else. Mm. And I was playing a lot of poker and there wasn't a lot of business stuff happening. And that's mm. what I was enjoying. The last three, four months, I've kind of enjoyed more doing a lot of the business stuff. And, uh, you know, it, it that's been really fun and empowering for me. Right. When when someone says, hey, we need five million dollars for our SPAC and sponsor money, which is really sweet money. And I can take it out to my friends and raise 5 million in 48 hours. That feels cool. That's a very small number to all the businessmen watching, but it felt pretty good for me to do that. Mm. And so, you know, and I've made a lot of people, a lot of money in my life. I've made a lot of people that have had pieces of me in poker, that have pieces of companies with me. I've made a lot of people, a lot of money. And I, I like that. I feel good about that. Definitely. Um, I've raised $65 million doing charity events. Right. That I MC. Do I get credit for that? I'm the MC. Sometimes I say, because you're here, we made an extra 500000 right? Right. Some of those events, to be fair, I get paid for. So my wife and I have given away, whatever, more money than I've been paid to do these charity events. But I can't just fly to New York in the middle of February. So I will charge. But it feels really good, good to me to pick up. You know, last week we picked up a million an event we usually pick up 1.6 and I have the microphone for six hours and everybody's having drinks and having fun and it's a group that's grown close over the years and it feels really good to raise all that money for charity. Definitely. Do you feel like, because this is something that I deal with and you might not be dealing with it now, but I'm sure you have in the past, is like it can be tricky juggling the fact that you love playing poker with having a family. I got a 10-month-old and, you know, on an average Sunday, I would love to play poker all day but at the same time i kind of feel like fuck like i'm missing out on this crucial time she's not going to be this beautifully cute and young for this long you know it's like there's a big part of me that's like i can't i i I gotta not play poker because i gotta be around the family and stuff was that was that a thing for you when you were in your younger years do you ever spend too much time playing poker and end up regretting it a little bit one more time you hit the nail on the head here adam and, and you know one of the things that i have written down here in in this book is you know is um not only do not only do you put, you know, not only does one chapter teach you, hey, write down your yearly goals, tape them to your bathroom mirror, write down your blessings, tape mm. them to your bathroom mirror. But what's at the top of everybody's list of blessings? Obviously health. If you think about it for more than 10 minutes, you're going to put health at the top. Mm. But then family. Right. So I see that list. I see that list of blessings every day in my bathroom mirror. 
And I know that family's number one, family's number one. And then, oh, of course, 15 world championships, writing New York Times bestsellers, hosting all these TV shows, raising all this money for all these guys. All that stuff is kind of fun. That's like a movie. Mm. But the life is about family and friends. Right. And so, and so, so yeah, I, I, that concept I figured out early, you know, and that's, that's that I want family number one. So I cut every trip short. Mm. I'd go to the East Coast to play poker. And then I'd go later and later, and if I busted out of the main event, even though I was scheduled to be in town another three days, I'd just fly back. So I cut almost every trip early to come home to my wife, mm-hmm. and I've been with 32 years. And, uh, and now our kids are grown up, and, and, and you know, the, pay, the payoff's there because you know, my sons are, are 28 and, and 31. They live a mile from us, which is a blessing. Wow. One lives a mile north, one lives a mile south. What a blessing that is. Yes. They pick up my phone calls. Uh, they're really great people. They're really nice. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm impressed with them also putting family at the top of their list. I was in Chicago with my son, you know, with my youngest son, Nick, uh, last week. And he, you know, took an hour train to, to attend a couple of dinners with family. Nice. I was just impressed. I'm like, wow, that's so sweet. Because I, I feel like when I was younger, I didn't really understand the real value of family. And, you know, it didn't make enough time to be with my parents. And now getting older and older and realizing that, you know, you are on a clock. You, you don't have infinite time to spend with the people you love. And, you know, li- life is all about balance. Life is all about, you know, trade-offs of, of what you want to spend your time doing. Yep. But that's pretty dope that he's, he's 28 and he, he sees how important that is. Yeah, it was really cool because he struggled with the concept a little bit more than his older brother. Okay. His older brother is the leader of all the cousins and took to that responsibility of family first immediately. So I, I don't know. You know, we had a, a huge family reunion, all my brothers and sisters and all their kids. Everyone showed up in oh. Vegas for four days. And I, so, I mean, yeah, we've really emphasized family first, family first. And, and you know... I, I struggle, I've struggled a little bit with the concept of how important are friends. Mm. Seems like everybody else got that concept before me. You know what I mean? But I figured it out and, uh, you know, I'm making a lot of time for my friends because I want to be with them. Uh, you know, we need people that will, that are truth tellers that can tell us, hey, you know, I mean, uh, you know. Yeah, because I mean, poker, or really if you're involved in like almost any industry, you end up knowing a lot of people. But to be really friends with someone is a lot of times you just don't take it past that sort of, you know, surface layer uh, level of familiarity with someone. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, and as no jumper takes off for you personally, then you're dealing with, you know, and you've already taken off, but as it takes off more and more, you're dealing with more and more celebrities that want to be in your life. You're dealing more and more, you know, sometimes I walk into a shop at, at the Aria Hotel. And, uh, Which, and, by the way, the first time that I went to play poker in Vegas, what went through my brain? What's that shit that it always says on Phil Hummy's hat? <laughs> I tell the Uber, yes, I yes. tell the Uber driver, yeah, take me to the Aria, because that that really is what went on oh, in my that's head. Amazing, because I didn't know which casinos to go to. Yeah, 
that's amazing. I walk into a shop and a guy says to me, you know, and I just walk into the, the store there and I see this couple and they see me and they, they're like crying. They're like, we stayed at the Aria. We got married at the Aria just hoping to run into you. And they're crying. I don't feel that. I, I just feel like I'm a normal person most days, right? Mm. There's the cockiness of having to promote yourself all the time, but a lot of that's a facade, right? It's true, but it's also a, a bit of a facade. You it's don't hard want to, to know what up. to do with that, yeah. that much energy because you'd love it and you've worked your whole life to cultivate that. But at the same time, when you're just walking on the street, you feel like a normal person. And it's kind of yeah. weird to have your, your ego all of a sudden just, just blown up outside of your body. Somebody treating you like you're you know, more important than everybody else in the universe. And you, yeah. it takes a while to understand <laughs> how to deal with that energy. You know? I mean, I started facing that in 03, 04. People would come right. up to me and they'd say, you're who I aspire to be in life. Mm. You're great at poker, but you're also a family person. That's a powerful compliment, you know, you, that resonates deeply. And so you don't want to hear that. Mm. You, want to, you really don't want to hear it, but you have to honor it. You have to shake the person's hand and say, thank you so much for that. Because they've given you a gift. The problem is the gifts, you know, uh, from their perspective is pure and everything. But, but when the gift is handed to someone like me, it can be corrosive, mm. you know. I mean, I remember, I remember I was in a club in Miami, Mansions, one night. I hosted this tournament for A-Rod, and afterwards, going to the club, and the, they, they whisked me into the back. Michael Jordan's in the back, as if I was good friends with him. I wasn't. But I walked up, and now there's Holifield and MJ and all these guys. And, and MJ's, Phil, great to see you. We're talking. And I said, I'm going to tease him. And I'm like, yo, MJ, you're the greatest. He cuts me off. He doesn't want to hear it. I mean, he doesn't mm. want to hear he's the greatest basketball player of all time. One more time, especially from someone who he respects and likes. We don't need that. Mm. You know? And so we try to avoid that and dodge that the best that we can. But it seeps in and then it messes with your ego and it messes with your production. Mm. And so anyway, I cut him off and I'm like, no, no, let me finish. I said, you know, you're the greatest basketball of all, player of all time. You have six world championships, but I have 11, motherfucker. <laughs> now that brought a high five and a laugh. Yeah. Because he wants to be teased. He doesn't want to. So this whole thing of dealing with ego, man, is, you know, I've come so, so far. I, I, I remember, uh, you know, when, when, when someone threw me a book launch party and Elon Musk showed up to my book launch party for my autobiography. And I was like, this is going to mess me up for a few weeks, mm -hmm. you know, or, 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 uh, or at the Aria walking down the hallway and Michael Jordan's running to catch up with me. I just waved at him and decided I don't want to bother him. He's running to catch up with me. And the next day I wake up and, uh, you know, somebody said, hey, Obama was asking how you're doing. This is when Obama was president. And I'm just like, oh, my God. And for three weeks, I walked around like a complete asshole. I mean, all I want to do is tell everybody, hey, Obama knows who I am, and he's asking about me, and mm. Michael Jordan ran to catch up with me, and all this, it's all a bunch of bullshit, you know? That's the movie. And if you get caught up watching the movie, you know, mm. it's, it's not so good. So it does help me to look at that list and say, wow, what's really important? Health. What's really important? Family. What's really important, friends. Mm. And the movie is amazing and it's fun to watch, you know. And I think you probably have a lot of similar experiences where the movie's really cool, right? Mm. Uh, but, you know, you don't want to walk around feeling like um, I'm Adam God. And a lot of the best moments in life, the best things, when you're with your family, when you're with your kids, I mean, those are the moments when 
they're treating you like a totally normal person that has nothing yes. to do with your accolades. You know, your pa- my parents will never treat me differently. My kid, it'll take a very, very long time before she starts to even understand anything about her dad that makes her treat him like he's some kind of public figure, you know? I feel like a lot of the best moments in life are the ones in which your ego's meaningless. 100% right. That's 100%. Those are the, those are the moments we all can connect to. Mm. So, yeah, I can say, oh, my God, Elon Musk or whatever, you know, this great or Michael Jordan. I can say, wow, those are amazing moments. And as a human person, I'm very prideful, thinking, wow, I've made it kind of. You know what I mean? It's part of I've made it part of what a life I have, what a movie I have. But then it distracts. You know, I'd rather be at the poker table. Sure, I'm playing with a bunch of amazing, you know, people that have climbed all the mountains. Mm. But at the table, we're ourselves. And we're laughing and we're teasing each other. You know, and that's that's pretty nice. There's something where regular people are just so impressed by great athletes. You know, we all look at Michael Jordan and I haven't touched a basketball in 20 years, but we all are just in awe because he's the greatest at what he does. And it's interesting how that applies to poker as well. And I think to some people it's even more fascinating because the average person has never, you know, the idea of being able to be this good for this long is just totally unfathomable. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. Taken as a compliment. For sure. Um, but yeah, do, do, like, how do you make sense of that? That, like, people, like, have you spent much time thinking about that? Like, why people would hold someone who's just really, really good at <laughs> poker? I've thought about that a lot, actually. Because there's a lot of games that maybe don't get that. Because most people play poker as a way to just fuck off and have some fun and blow some money, right? The yeah. idea that you could make a living at it is really fascinating to people, right? <laughs> I think I think what happened is people watch me do things that they've never seen done. So mm. when I when I was first watching Tiger and he'd be in the rough, he's 150 yards out, you know, and he hits the ball to two feet. I'm like, no human being can do that. Mm. But he's doing it over and over and over again and making these long putts when it really counted. So when you see human beings perform at the at the at extraordinary levels, and I was able to do that on television, folding ace king when you know when an ace hit the board and the other guy had pocket aces. Mm. And so they saw a bunch of these really great, great, great moves, right? And then I think that attracts people. Wow, that's interesting. Why did, you know, how does, what is it about Phil that gives him the ability to do that? Mm. So we kind of have drawn to people that are, you know, on the fringes. We're drawn to those people. Here's the chart. And we're drawn to the people that are the dots way off the chart, right? Mm. What makes them special? And I found it right away in poker um, that all these A-list actors and rappers and, you know, I mean, Drake came up to me the other day. <laughs> I mean, it was, we hung out, we played, we, we gambled together for a mm. while. And it's, I find that just kind of, uh, I was like, wow, why, why, why do they want to hang out with me? And I thought, I mean, I'm doing something which is kind of cool, you know? Yeah. So. And, and in a way that the average person will just never even begin to approach, you know? Yeah. When I look back, okay, so that time period when you would put out your first book and everything, um, poker was rising in popularity at that point, but had not yet officially exploded. It's always weird for me to look back at that time period, too, and realize that Rounders was many years before the <laughs> real right, poker right. boom. Rounders was like 97, I think. Right, so it's like it's weirdly uh, like prophetic that yeah, they knew yeah, yeah, that yeah. this shit was coming and it was going to be huge because the movie wasn't that big at the time. Yep. And Matt Damon wasn't a huge actor at the time either. Yeah. Yeah. But so then the game really starts to explode. Is your mentality like, wow, like that's like buying Bitcoin early. Like I became really good at poker before I knew it was going to be this big. 
describe your mental state at watching the game that you dedicated your life into become a frenzy. Well, I knew in, I knew in the 1995, I, I went on record saying, hey, eventually we're going to play in stadiums and people are going to watch us. Mm. So I had a vision for that happening. Eventually we're going to be on television. But it took a lot longer. So then after five, six years, you know, by the time we hit 2000, 2001, I'm like, well, maybe I'm wrong. I guess I didn't think about it. And then all of a sudden, boom, it took off much bigger than I could have imagined even, right? Like it was crazy. Mm. Um, I mean, like... Uh, <laughs> we're treated like we're treated like the top two or three guys are treated like A-list actors everywhere we go. You're it's, on TV every minute of the day. Since '05, I've I've been able to just come into any restaurant, no matter how big, and they somehow somebody if the somehow somebody recognizes me. I think the food service industry people are my biggest fans. Thanks, guys. It doesn't hurt that you're <laughs> I like owe you guys. He's the size of fucking minute bowl exactly. walking into this place exactly. too. Exactly. It's hard to miss. Right, right, right. They're like, wait, wait. Is that is that a who is that tall guy? He has a little swagger because I do I do walk with some swagger mm. and then he's like is that is that a basketball player is that whatever and then somebody out of the three people at the front desk is like wait wait that's a poker player what's mm. his name phil oh but 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 i'm a fan of his and then all of a sudden you have that table it's just kind of a weird yeah dealing it, it was very weird to just kind of go from you know but from since 1989 in the poker world whenever i walked into a room Everybody stopped and stared because I won at the main event when I was in 1989, and that spread out all, all over the poker world. So in Europe, everywhere I went, I had a little bit of a special attention, but this was another level, right? Crazy. Right. If you would you rather this book be New York Times bestseller, or would you rather win the main event? Obviously, one is probably much less likely. It's, it's going to well, take uh, <laughs> winning the main event. So the real involves you surviving is, a lot of variants. But the real question is this: if I can influence you know 100 million lives mm. through my book and make people better and smarter and think bigger versus winning the main event mm. there's a selfishness of wanting to win the main event but then there's like oh my god i can change 100 million people's lives i've already changed i, I hope i've changed a million lives maybe that's too cocky mm. but i've every interview i've done for the last two years i've talked about some of my life lessons in this book and, and I think a lot of people, you know, just the one where you, where you, where you, where you write your 2021 20, goals and tape it to your bathroom mirror, people always hit their first and second goal. And then they, and then the next time I see them, you know, uh, someone, I, somewhere I spoke, they're like, they come up to me and like, Phil, you changed my life. That feels pretty cool, mm. you know? And so if you have an influence on the world, that's amazing. So my influence is uh, smaller, much smaller than I want it to be, but I think I'm headed in the right direction. But if, say you win the main event. What happens to your ego and what tools have you learned mm. to sort of like, to, you know what's going to happen inside your head. You know that you're going to be on this roller coaster ride for the next couple of months. But you know that you want to stay relatively level. You don't want to be believing that you're the shit and being rude to people that you love and stuff like that. Like what, what, what kind of processes trigger in your brain when you well, have something like okay, that happen? Okay. So unfortunately I have to tell you how old I am. I'm 57. So 30, 37. So doesn't feel I feel like ancient. That. So you, know, <laughs> well, you imagine actually I are, I guess. So. <laughs> Jesus, I just got called ancient. That was ruthless. That's so cold. You're so ruthless. <laughs> but I mean, the cycle goes mm. down, right? The cycle goes down each time. So in your twenties, you win a bunch of tournaments and you walk around for like six months mm. and you're self-destructive for like six months. Now, I've never cheated on my wife. Very proud of that. Not an alcoholic, not a drug addict, none of that stuff. So, so then, then it probably came out in ego in other ways, right? 
Luckily, my wife, um, you know, has been good for me. But the cycle of ego goes down and down and down. And then sometimes after winning seven matches in a row, I started in the pandemic, right? Mm. Everything I'm touching, I'm winning, you know, all this money playing poker, millions of dollars playing poker in the pandemic. Uh, you know, I won 700,000 in my heads up matches. You just keep winning and winning and winning and winning. And then you start to, and then I think what happens is the ego starts to take off. And then you win a televised match. I won three in a row against Antonio, one of the best in the world. I won three in a row against Daniel, one of the best in the world. And so ego goes up, 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 up. And I, then I kind of catch myself walking around, you know, and, and I keep I always ask myself, did I talk too much during that interaction? Mm. That's a good sign because I'm searching. So I'm having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a friend from Chicago. I'm in this, you know, place in Lake Geneva. And then I start, and I'm like, all right, did I talk too much? And the minute I sense I'm starting to talk too much, then it's time to ask questions about them. And you know what? When you ask somebody about themselves, that's always pretty interesting for me. Yeah. And then I can get lost in talking about them. And so there's this constant struggle, this battle. I remember my ego was spiking up when I went down to Rio and, like, the most important person in the country wanted to meet me, you know, and I was like, whoa. I mean, it just kind of blew me away. And, uh, and I just remember, you know, saying, God, all right, there's something wrong with your ego here. And so the best I could do was focus on health, family, and friends, the best that I could. Mm. And then, you know, uh, my best friend uh, told me the other day that I've been a little bit uh, too egotistical. Uh, he didn't use words that are that nice. Your friends feel comfortable letting you know that kind of stuff. Is that how you prefer to have your relationships be? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. But that led to me. Then I lost a match. Finally, I lost my match to Tom Dwan. Okay. He told me I've been a little bit unbearable. <laughs> and so now I just I felt really horrible about myself for days. And then but then you change. Right. Then you make the changes. You know, I think there's a person, Phil Helmuth, that people like to hang around with, that they like to be with. That's a really decent guy that roots for everybody that wants everybody to do well. There's this person that I'm really proud of in here. And then, you know, sometimes that person gets lost. Right. And so then my friends, my close friends are like, we want to be with this guy. We want to be with this guy. And when I bring him this guy, you know, who talks too much, who's too egotistical, mm. then they're like, all right, you're a little bit unbearable. And, you know, so just in the last two weeks since I was told that I've, I've changed a ton for the better. It's interesting because like, when I got introduced to you on the phone through our friend Scott Ball, a good friend of mine who uh, hooked me up with uh, America's Endgame Card Room Talent and Agency. Shout out Endgame, America's Card Room, et cetera. Um, it very much was that tone where he, he told me beforehand, he's like, Phil is a great guy, one of the best people I know. But it's almost like he's kind of aware of your ego as well where like he he knows like sometimes phil can be a little bit like this but he's a great guy so it's like it, everyone in your orbit sort of knows that that's a he thing gave you he gave you the pre-warning he gave me a little uh yeah like the, the label on the side of the cigarette pack <laughs> phil helmet comes with one, one of them oh my god uh, continue right. that that's um but it was just obvious that he really did love you and thought you were a great person but it's just you know he, he's but I feel like that that's part of what it is to love you, right? Is that like you kind of have to be aware of yeah. your shortcomings as well, yeah, right? Yeah, I was kind of mad at my, my friend. I'm like, listen, I mean, I, I can see how I'd be unbearable. Why didn't you tell me this a few months ago? So I could have started correcting it then. Right. But it's not easy to deal with, right? So my, even though my cycles of dealing with ego too big have gotten better and better and better, and also when you just keep winning stuff and great things just keep happening, 
it's it's a little harder and, and you just do your best because you want to connect with people. I want to be able to have a talk with you and say, wow, great question. I see you're really thinking. That's important. Appreciate it. Um, okay, the, the alternate side of that question, though, is the average poker player might not really ever figure out what it's like to be on top of the world, to feel like you're at the absolute epicenter of success. But every poker player knows what it's like to go through a downswing. Have you ever had one of those that was like truly crushing over the years? And I'm sure it wouldn't maybe matter as much. Poker money probably doesn't matter that much and make that big of a dent in your day to day these days. But I'm sure you've had times where, especially early on, where you were like, am I even good at this? I'm running so bad that I, I, I don't know how the fuck to feel about myself. There was a time in, I think, 94, 95, 96. So I won the main event. I told everyone I was going to win it in 1989, 24 years old. Right. And then you fast forward to 92, 93, I won four bracelets. I won three bracelets in 93. Mm. So now I'm thinking, all right, I'm the baddest ass on the planet by 10x. No one else was doing this. Mm -hmm. And then, then I think it was a real dry spell for like, you know, three years where I just didn't win much. And you really struggle and you go and you buy books on positive thinking and you go and buy books on... Like this one. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote wasn't available one. at the time, but <laughs> and you go and you do the best, you know, and so you're you're looking, you're looking, you're searching, right? That was kind of tough. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think, and I think it feels like, you know, and then there was a, a stretch in maybe oh eight, oh nine, kind of ten, where I just didn't win enough tournaments, mm -hmm. and then boom, eleven, I crushed it, and twelve back to back years where I'm second in Player of the Year at the World Series. Those are that's a big thing to have right won like three bracelets had like three seconds crushed it but just so you know i mean now at this age i kind of understand that i have the skills um and then it's really weird in, in my 50s the last seven years it seems like i've rarely lost three times in a row yeah. <laughs> so the first time i lose i'm like all right what did you do wrong i'm searching at every play the second time out now i go crazy mm. oh my god did it you need to go back to basics da, da 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 and then the third time i'd always win so i rarely lost three in a row for years but you talk about being pretty happy about winning that 1.5 million on the app based game over the pandemic let's say you had lost 1.5 you ran like total shit would that affect you mentally would you be walking sure. around feeling like fuck so i mean uh, either either i'm the luckiest human being in the world by 10x or there's more skill in poker than the average person thinks mm. one of the two exists because i've been winning you know i mean i don't think i've had a losing month in 15 years or something maybe it, i don't think i've had a losing month i think i had a losing year once maybe in 1988 or i broke even mm. so i just i haven't even had a losing month in a decade right so it's been kind of cool now i'm not i'm taking out world series of poker tournaments because you, you, can, you can play in 30 of those and end up down a little bit. But I'm talking about in the cash games. Hmm. So I've been on this massive run for a long time. And, you know, and then you just, you learn not to get too cocky. And, you know, may, maybe it's a blessing in disguise for me, Adam, that I'm so emotional about winning and losing. Hmm. Because the losing is 10 times worse than the winning. I hate mm. losing more than anybody on the planet. Right. And those losses make me question my ego. They make me question who I am. They make me question everything. And there's nothing healthier than questioning your whole life. Right. Right? And in questioning my whole life, 
um, you know, because I lost once. <laughs> you know, it's a really good thing because right. some guys will lose for three months straight before they kind of like, well, you know what? Maybe it's time to make a change. I just lost all my money. Plus, I borrowed 100000 and lost that. And then they finally decide to make a change where I'm already, you know, way ahead of the curve there. Right. Yeah. But, having, mean, but, have, but have a lot more emotional angst as a bad byproduct. But, but it's, it's interesting to me that you, you still like don't seem to mind that pain that you feel when you uh, run bad. Because a lot of the people that I really look up to that I watch online in terms of poker and stuff, like my coach, uh, Jordan from BBZPoker.com, I mean, I've watched him, you know, just lose, lose a flip or lose to set over set with, you know, super deep in a 10K. And it's, you know... It just seems like he, he really has steeled himself to this. Like, it just doesn't really affect him that much. He's played enough. He knows it doesn't really matter that much. To me, that is like, I would love to get there as a pro or as a, a poker player, is to be able to feel nothing when you lose. Okay, so the positive side of feeling nothing is that your life's going to be a lot easier. And I had to learn in the early 90s not to bring back yeah. negativity to my to my primary relationship my mm. wife and my children so that part, i huh? kind of learned which is great um i didn't master it but at least i learned it so if i had a really bad day you know i bring back you know 10 percent of it versus 100 percent of it mm. in the past in the early in the 80s and the early 90s so i mean you're talking about a guy now your coach who loses a massive pot doesn't blink goes to the next hand at a different site or whatever that's a great skill to have um, and, uh, and there's part of me that doesn't want that because mm. in feeling the pain of, a, of one or two losses, you know, and then also things, let's, let's be clear too, Adam, when I was talking about not losing three times in a row, I'm talking about the real world. Now, once I started playing online every day, yeah, sure. There were days where there were times I lost four days in a row in our online game. Mm. And it was a matter of, can I keep the losses down? And I was pretty good at losing small and winning big. Right. That's different because online playing every day, I don't think we have the capacity as human beings to make those micro changes or those macro changes from day to day. Whereas if I lose in the real world and I'm, I'm, I'm going to play two days later, I've thought about it for two days. Right. And then I play a week later. And I've thought about it. So, so I, guess, I guess the pattern's a little bit different online, and maybe you should be a little bit more stoic. Not Phil Hellmuth, right. stoic online. But, I mean, the hands just can't mean as much when you're playing online, even if you're playing, True. you know, four or five tables or whatever. I mean, on an average Sunday, it's like, I know I lost a bunch of times with aces to kings, but I don't remember any of them because it all just blends together into a big old mess of variants. And, uh, but, okay, when you play on, online versus playing against those same exact players in real life, how much of an advantage do you feel like you have over your online self when you're able to stare into their soul and watch the way their fingers twitch? Huge, huge, huge. I mean, mm. the difference is almost night and day. What I discovered was playing with uh, more amateur players online mm -hmm. was really good for me. Really? I, I seem to just, I seem to know what they had a lot more often mm. against the amateurs. The way they stalled an extra three seconds, five seconds, 10 seconds, those added up to tells for me. But to your point, nowhere near being in the real world. Mm. You know, nowhere near. I mean, I folded a hand, I folded a hand the other day in a match that had never been folded before, to my knowledge, in a heads up match ever in history. And I know the whole world's watching. You're talking ace jack suited? Yep. Yeah. You even know the hand. Yeah. I had ace jack of spades. I limped in. Negreanu made it a seven times the big blind raise 
So say the blinds were two and 400, I called 400, he made it 2,800 more. And I folded ace jack of spades. Mm. And I did more interviews about that one hand because no one's ever folded ace jack of spades in the, the, the hundred, two, the billion hands we've watched people playing heads up. It's never been done. Mm. And I also, <laughs> I mean, I had 30 seconds to make that decision, we had a clock. It also flashes in my mind the amount of criticism I'm gonna take from the planet if I'm wrong. Mm. Because no one's going to understand it if I'm wrong. Hmm. No, I'm not getting no support from... No one's going to say one... They're all going to just jump on me, the whole poker world. The whole world. What did you do? But the fact that he had ace-queen... Legendary. Then made it legendary, right. So I, so I had something to gain, hmm. but I had a lot to lose. And I thought about that. That entered my thinking for 10 seconds. And I'm like, nope, I'm trusting my instincts. But I don't care if I look bad to the whole world. You can't think about your how people are going to perceive you that much when you're playing though like like and you've done so much playing on camera like how much of your mental bandwidth are you willing to to vote to the way that the fallout from this particular hand might be because you could always think about that right rather than thinking about like what he might have what you know i mean that's gonna that, be okay tough, that right that was super rare yeah okay, okay that was <laughs> super usually happen. yeah, yeah never <laughs> well I've, no one's ever folded ace jack suited before before so but that in that specific moment, that did that did hit my mind, and it, it doesn't come up much. I mean, maybe I spent one minute of six hours thinking about what the public thinks about how okay. I'm playing. Um, but but, the, but I meant I meant to mention that only because it was extraordinary that it happened. Mm. That that actually hit my mind. You're going to look like a jerk, you know. Hundred percent. Um, okay, so you're riding high on the poker wave all through the 2000s. Then we have Black Friday uh, in 2009, I believe, and poker's overall visibility even if you don't play online poker's visibility took a huge hit all of a sudden it's not really on tv to the same way you don't see a poker stars billboard on the highway um how did that affect you and uh you know as someone who just loves the game and wants to see the game do well what are your thoughts on on what that did to the overall poker well you, i can't help but think about how it personally affected me too right right we had a company uh we had a company that was public in london it was trading at around 400 million maybe i had four or five points of that company we're talking party poker no i, I didn't have a piece of party i had a oh, piece it was, of uh, the ult right yeah the ultimate bet derivative which was uh was was that was public in london and boom overnight the stock goes to zero right okay so that cost me 12 or 13 million dollars at least. Um, and then on top of it, the sponsorship stuff stopped. So at that point, I was making only from, from the site between 70 and 100,000 a month. But all of a sudden, that disappears. So, you know, right. and all of a sudden, and I was, I was spending about 65,000 a month. Um, I was building a bunch of businesses. And all of a sudden, I ran really short on cash. I remember. I went to the World Series of Poker Europe and I won the main event there for 1.1 million, 1.2 million. Uh -huh. I brought the money back and it started to disappear super quickly. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, this is <clears throat> unbelievable. I'm going to, and there was a part of me that's like, hey, all right, your house has gone up. Uh, your house went from a million to seven million. You can borrow money on the house. I actually went to borrow money. They said no. Which why? is ridiculous. I, I couldn't. Exp I couldn't tell you why. If my house is worth seven and my mortgage was a million, uh, any reasonable person. Now, of course, then they email me eight months later. Oh, we can give you two million now, and I just said, "Fuck." 
Well, fuck you. It was right after of, the financial crisis. Kind of huh? said, "Fuck you guys." Was, you know? was that 2008 or so that the it was harder. took a huge hit? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was a couple of years after, but money was still a little tight. And then right. they, nine months later, here's two million if you need us, and fuck you guys, because what I decided was I'm a fighter. Right. And I'm going to make a lot of money playing poker, but now I have to do it. Right. So, you know, two things kind of make you great, right? There's, you know, there's inspiration and desperation. Mm. I can relate to that. I want a lot of bracelets because of desperation, right. you know, because I needed to win. So I just went out there and I got the job done. I started mm. winning and winning and winning and winning when I really needed to win. You know, when you look at those years right after the UGA, maybe it's no accident that in 2011 and 2012, I had, you know, uh, two seconds in player of the year. Mm. And, um, and so it was good for me to fight. And I never did borrow that money. Mm. And then, you know, as time passed, things got healthier. I still did not have a sight deal to this day. Mm. I have no sight deal. Now, that's about to change. I'm about to make a massive announcement for a mm. huge sight that's probably it's going to be maybe one of the biggest deals of my life, right? But Aria stepped in, and, and they were paying me, you know, uh, you know, just, you know, basically I was there for a lot of years. I mean, Aria basically stepped up in 2009. So that was nice. He had some money there. Um, you can email them the clip of me saying that I played there because of your hat. <laughs> I think that they'll probably, you know, next time you need to re-sign the deal, there you go. But, but that's, that's a time where you have to say to yourself, hey, listen, all this free money disappeared. What are you going to do? Mm. And so that made me into the best poker version of myself. Right. Did it occur to you at that time or did it feel like, oh, the thing that I've been working towards my entire life and the thing that seems like it's been going so unbelievably well for the last however many years, it might all be over. Like this is, this is the biggest hit that we can imagine to this thing. Like how much did that hurt like thinking that maybe i had put all this time and dedicated my whole life to this thing and now it was just going to kind of fizzle out well okay I not mean, that so live poker was going to fizzle out but you know that the online thing was the thing that was really driving poker at the yeah, time yeah no you're right i mean let's go back to think of it like this in 2000 they had a tournament at the bicycle club the main event it had 35 players to me that was the low point in poker history wow 35 players at the main event at the bike in the 80s, we had 140 players or 100 players. So I just thought, wow, this is really bad. Now, fast forward to one year later. Uh -huh. One year. I show up. I walk in the door. There's news trucks from CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox in the lot. Uh, I walk in. I'm told there's like 700 players, 35 the year before. Mm. I walk in and they say, Phil, Sports Illustrated wants time. And I said, no. And I realized, wait a minute, Sports Illustrated is your favorite magazine? Yeah, of course, I have time for Sports Illustrated. Right. You know, I walk in and, and, and there's Ben Affleck and he's going out with, uh, you know, he's back with J-Lo, right? And right. So they're the, the biggest people in the world at that point. And Ben sees me and I said, yeah, I better go over there and welcome to poker. And he starts quoting from my book. Wow. Play poker like the pros. And I'm like, wow. Not only he knows my name, which is amazing, right? But he also has read my book, right. and he's quoting my book to me. So I was like, "Wow, that's pretty cool." So the just the ju you know the juxtaposition of thirty-five players to just cameras all over the place and a bunch of celebrities in the room and seven hundred players or whatever it is. I'm probably exaggerating. It had to be at least five hundred players. It was just like night and day. Mm. And so from that moment on, poker just went like this. And you're right. It slowed down. So basically went all the way up to maybe 2011. We started falling, right? 
We didn't fall that much. Maybe we fell 20%. Look mm-hmm. at the numbers. And then, boom, it started rising again. And you look at 2019. Mm. You look at a $200 on the same weekend, $200 buy-in tournament in Philly, like a 500 in L.A., and like uh, a 500 in the Sacramento area, all with a million, a million, and two million guarantees. Wow. And they go flying over. And I was like, oh, my God, poker's in amazing shape. It might not be in amazing shape for people buying 50000 a pop or 25000 a pop, but people love the game. These are massive amounts of people. One weekend in poker to have that happen. And I'm like, all right, poker's in great shape. So I think actually, I think actually now it's bigger in 2021 than the peak in 11, mm. but it definitely fell. But now it's just like the numbers of people that are playing, are, are, it feels like it's pretty crazy. And then think about this, Adam. All of the people that didn't have anything to do for six months that were staying at home. Mm. <laughs> I mean, did you start playing poker online? That was, I had already been fucking around a little bit, but that was when I was like, you know what? I'm going to really start working on my game, really start studying, really start playing for real. And that, that was, you know, something I just did not have time for at that point in my life. And that, that was the weird thing about the pandemic is you realize when everything's great, online poker is just going to be smaller and when when people have to stay in that's amazing for online poker it's sort of like this awkward calculus of you know if there was another plague tomorrow (laughs) all these sites are gonna blow up again you know i know people who had stopped playing tournaments they just didn't feel like it was juicy enough wasn't worth their time yep the pandemic hits boom they're, they're back at it it was the numbers were unbelievable. It's like everybody you just didn't have anything to do. Mm. Right? I mean, you're at home for five months, right? Yeah. Five months straight. Most of the world was actually at home five months straight. Mm-hmm. What are you gonna do with your time? Yeah. Well, you can connect socially with a bunch of people you play poker with. And so the online poker, the app stuff just went crazy. And so 2019 was great for us with all these small stakes people coming in. And then the pandemic was amazing for online poker because mm. the online poker just went crazy. Mm. And so I just felt like this huge reemergence of people to poker. And then I was filming with Antonio. No one was filming the last three months. Antonio and I started filming in like, uh, I don't know, September Mm. uh, last year. They were filming nothing. And so he and I playing this match. And then we just got these huge global ratings for all three of our matches. And so I, I don't know, it just felt like, I just felt like it was also good that, you know, you have two of the two of the two of the titans battling and then Negranu and I two of the titans battling I think it was good for poker uh, but I mean the ratings just went so crazy because what are people doing you couldn't there were no live sports in September mm. or maybe NFL had just come back right right oh the the NBA had you know but it was just the NBA right mm. yeah I mean that's kind of the the constant well something you just said made me think about it. it's like this constant predicament of like how do you really contextualize poker to make it entertaining for people out there. It seemed like it was really easy when you had ESPN dumping money into it. Um, or these sites spent three, four billion a year promoting it. These sites like Full Tilt, they would go to Europe, they'd go to European TV, television producer and they'd say, oh, we have all this content. Mm. We, can fill, we can give you six days a week of content for free, just include our commercials. And so like, wow, so all these European countries accepted it. But anyway, to your point, you were saying billions being spent. And yeah, I mean, just at that time, like when you when you look back at that, I mean, you had a ton of, of huge celebrities minted in that era, you know, you, Daniel Doyle, uh, Phil Ivey, et cetera. 
And now it's like even the best players, they really only become famous to other poker players. And it's like it's very hard to rise above that certain level, which to me feels like a, a big deal. Like, you know, I, I feel like the poker dream, that thing that like when I was in my early 20s, this idea that I could make a living off of being on my computer in my room. I mean, that's a beautiful thing. And I don't want to see that die. Sometimes it feels like the level of enthusiasm for that is is kind of low that there's like less people that feel like that's a real possibility these days why do you think that is so so you're right all these new guys mm. they haven't become nearly as famous and then they get jealous and they insult me all the time right because <laughs> Some of them. right i'll i'll play poker with mr beast and and the the whole the whole poker world goes nuts for a week right they win three tournaments and no one mentions their name ever mm. so i wonder why that is i i think a lot of it's personality you have a theory yeah, personality, I think. I mean, I think that when you have these guys on TV and in commercials all the time and stuff, it's just much easier to rise up above that. Like when I said Phil Hellman's coming in, every all my employees who are over the age of 30, it's like, yes, Phil Hellman. The guys who are 21, they need a little reminder because they didn't necessarily grow up watching TV or seeing these tournaments on TV and stuff like that. At that time, throughout the 2000s, I mean – Poker was just part of the vernacular. Like it was just such a common thing to see on TV that it was it was just easy to to have people sort of become curious about it. When I think about why I was curious about it in 2003, it's because I had probably seen enough TV at that point that I had just gotten curious enough that I bought a book and deposited two hundred dollars into a site. Yeah, it makes complete sense. Yeah, mm. yeah. And you, now I think now what we have is you you're right, 30 and above. But now with people like Mr. Beast, shout out Mr. Beast. Shout out Mr. Beast. Nicest guy. guy ever, by the way. Mm. Nicest guy ever. Uh, you know, but him getting involved in our game and Ludwig and all these guys and, and you know, playing in front of like I just feel like I feel like there were like seven, eight years where we didn't get enough. Mm. And all of a sudden with guys like Mr. Beast leading the charge, it feels like there's also a resurgence among the youth. Yeah, that's true. That's definitely what we need. And especially now, do you kind of feel like the way right now that you felt maybe a couple of years before the poker boom where maybe with all these states starting to legalize poker and, and regulate poker, maybe we are kind of in the lead up to a big spike in poker's overall history. And maybe it needed to go through this lull in order to get to that brighter future. I've always said there's a boom and a super boom. Mm. So we had a big boom. And I felt like the super boom's coming as soon as it's legalized back in the U.S. Because the boom, there were still people, there were still lawyers like my brother, and a lot of people that felt like, eh, I can't play online poker because if I, if, you know, because they, they're risking their careers, right? Mm. They thought. Right. Right. And, and maybe they were right. I don't think they were right. But, you know, and so all these conservative people didn't get in. Mm. Now we say it's completely legal and it's, it's in the U.S. law and it's in the state law that you can do this. I think the super boom is coming. Mm. And so it's really fun. And, and you're right, though. I think we're up to, I, I'm involved in a bunch of different stocks right now. I think. Some of these places are up to 13 to 18 states already. Mm. Probably not that many for poker, but it's going to keep being pushed forward. It's going to keep growing. And then I think there's going to be a super boom. Yeah. Yeah, because if, if it was legalized across the country and all of a sudden everybody was able to really, you know, and, and I say this as a person who plays on ACR all the time. And in a lot of ways, I think, you know, say PokerStars was able to be in all of America with a regulated site. Part of me wonders how much the world needs regulated poker because it feels like a lot of people myself included are very happy playing on a you know essentially crypto based site mm. well i i think 
Well, okay, a lot of people, but then you have another 20 or 30 percent that would play because now and it's the lawyers. marketing is the biggest part. And like the, the billboards on the side of the Good highway point. are what's going to bring the people in, period. Well, you know? also, one other, one other thing you're going to love. How about this? How about when they share liquidity oh, and yeah. you have a $200 mm. buying tournament that has 100,000 players in it, like the old days? Yeah. And what's first place for that? Mm. You know? And so that is pretty cool because you're going to have a lot of people that aren't great poker players. Because online, the blinds go up so quickly. Mm. They're going to have million-dollar scores, $2 million scores uh, that are winning 50000 here or there. And I think poker, you know, so, I mean, I think once we have shared liquidity, you know, it's like a match. We already have a bunch of gasoline over here. You, but is it likely that the, the player pool is going to be shared between America and outside of America at some point? Yeah. Because that I mean, would be really crazy. One of the things, one of the, I happen to know that they're working on shared liquidity. You already have it between New Jersey and Nevada. Right. right. So the World Series of Poker. So I know that every time there's a law introduced, you know the way these laws work. Yeah. Basically, the experts. So basically, if it's a law about online poker, somebody from Caesars is writing that law. Mm. And then, you know, and of course the lawmakers are like, okay, we like this, we like that. But they're writing the law, mm. right? And, and the one thing everybody wants is shared liquidity. Right. So, I mean, can you just imagine? I mean, there's probably in the next five years, there'll probably be a tournament that'll have a million people enter it. Right. It's, it's, it's just unheard of. It's sick. But I mean, what did we have? We already had tournaments with 200,000 players in them, right? Right. That was in 2011. Yeah. Still, I mean, still some of these tournaments on ACR will be fucking huge. Like, I mean, they, you know, I played in like multi-million dollar guaranteed tournaments on there and stuff too. Yep, and it's, yep. I mean, the, 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 as much as you kind of feel like poker has gotten smaller at times, I, there's still a lot of other things I see that I'm like, holy shit, this game is fucking massive. It's not quite getting the press it used to, right? Mm, yeah. But, you know, th there, there comes a time where different things are media darlings and then that just kind of goes away and the media sort of picks and chooses but the one thing we know is that the media will follow where the advertising money is and that's what i get now as an adult it's like why were they showing so much poker on tv oh because they had tons of advertisers who wanted to dump money into this content and like you said i didn't realize that they were just giving them the content for free to just play their ads that's fucking genius genius right these guys did a great job and then and then the other sites would do their shows and they'd bring them in and so uh, you know, and you think about you think about you think about Poker After Dark. Mm. Did you watch that show back in the day? Oh yeah, because it seemed like a lot of people watch Poker After Dark oh, six yeah. days a week. That was not about the poker. That was about the personalities at the table. Mm. We would sit there, we'd discuss politics in a reasonable way. Mm. We did, you know, we knew if someone's Democrat, Republican, whatever, it doesn't matter. There's going to be a reasonable discourse there, and then we'd be talking about all these, you know, fun things. Really smart people at the table having a lot of fun but also playing poker mm. uh, and the pots are also worth watching too forty thousand dollar pots hundred thousand dollar pots and so that show which i think they did an amazing job with that's the one that went all over the world and i think we're gonna have that coming back too someone has to do a poker after dark but i don't think nbc paid very much for that show right i mean when i I heard people say like, oh, if they bring back poker after dark, it's not going to be any good because everybody plays like this now and stuff. But then when I'm watching the clips from Poker Go on YouTube and stuff, I'm like, there's some crazy shit happening out here. Like, I mean, there's definitely not a lack of rich dudes who want to have some fun playing poker and potentially be on TV, right? I mean, to me, some of the GTO and, and new game theory stuff tells you to get your money in a lot lighter and weaker. Right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. And so that creates really good television. Mm. So. 
this whole generation that I think of is like, imagine a pigeon flying around, right? And then everybody that's like one step away from it that makes a mistake, they shoot that guy and he comes closer to the group. So this whole group playing exactly the same way. Mm. And so I have to track that and figure out, all right, how do I beat that pigeon that's flying around, you know? But okay, here's the question is, who's the Joe Rogan of poker as an announcer? Because I've, I've often heard it when discussing the UFC, the UFC is popular, Joe Rogan, takes it to a totally different level because now you have this mega familiar voice that people already love his podcast and he's announcing it and he's super knowledgeable and he but he speaks well to a not super educated audience when talking about this incredibly complicated fighting i feel like there's got to be people out there who are able to explain you know intense complicated gto oriented scenarios like that in a way where the audience could still enjoy it right i think that's hard i mean i think mm. i think you you know you they look definitely at- cannot pull up the solver if people I'll, take one look at the solver, it's over. It's over. Like, I mean, <laughs> that's one thing I understood from day one coming in as an announcer. Talk down to the least educated person, right? right. That's important. Uh, but I, you look at, I think, Nick Shulman and Ali Najat are doing a great job. Uh, uh, you know, you look at old school, uh, Jesse. Uh, oh, man, I forget. He's going to be mad at me forgetting his last name. But, you know, he did all the Premier League stuff, and he was considered the voice of poker mm. in England. So, I mean, I think, I think that there's going to be some pretty interesting, you know, Norm and Lon uh, mm-hmm. have done a really good job. Um, so Definitely. Um, you know, a lot of times when I think about online poker specifically in comparison to gaming in general, that occurs to me. is like, how, how does poker need to adapt to make this as exciting as Fortnite? I mean... That seems like a pretty big challenge because you're looking at a game that was built from the ground up to be addictive and to be as entertaining as possible. And a lot of times when I'm on a final table bubble and I've just folded 40 hands in a row and I'm squeaking into the money with three big blinds, <laughs> I'm like, this is not... Said like a true th- poker th- this player. This is not a game that was really like made to be played in such a way. Like This is not the game to attract a, a new young audience. Although at times when I'm playing like you know a Zoom style poker where you just get yep, the fold, yep, fold, yep. fold, and you get a new hand every five seconds i'm like this is a great development like this is keeping my attention in a way that a lot of video games might um do you think about that much in terms of like the 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 new generation's uh attention and their ability to to love poker absolutely and and your points are dead on you know there's that time where folks what he's talking about is say there's 400 players left in a tournament and 398 get played Mm. and then they go table for table so each hand takes like 15 minutes as everybody stalls. I mean, it's, it gets a little ridiculous. That's, mm. that's kind of me. The low point uh, of, of poker tournaments is right there. Right. You brought up a good example of that. I, I don't think that poker's ever going to be as exciting as the video games. And that's okay. I mean, that's okay. I mean, we'd like to see it get that exciting. Your version, you also made another good point. This version where they're playing like Zoom poker or whatever it's called, where they bring you a new hand every Mm -hmm. five seconds, you just fold, fold, fold. That might have enough action for some people in it, Um, but for some of the for some of the youth. But it's never quite going to be as fast. It's never now, now, now. It's not blackjack. You don't get to play every hand. Right. And so part of the skill is is discipline and patience, and um, you know. As the generations, the generations, as we as we look younger and younger, there's less and less patience because everybody can get everything. Mm. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I can grab my phone. And I'm opening my phone all the time and I'm not even of that generation, you know. Right. But there, there's a lot of people doing a lot of interesting things. Like you ever watch like a, a upload of somebody who posts from a GG poker and there's 
you got Daniel dancing around on the screen. You got yes. Dan Bilzerian's face popping up and stuff. Like the the fact that people have actually really leaned into the emojis and stuff so much has really impressed me because like I would have always thought that you know I, I'm, I'm playing poker all the time and nobody's even in the chat. Never mind throwing these emojis up. It turns out the emojis are a lot more accessible. You know, it's a lot easier to throw up a dancing Daniel rather than, you know, type out a full sentence. Uh, yeah, and Twitch, you, you probably know this better than mm. me, You people pay for emojis. Oh, yeah. So I created emojis. I did some bullets because of my line, I can dodge bullets, baby. Right. But, I mean, to me, to me, to me, that that's, you're exactly right. That can make what is a slower game a lot more exciting. Someone talking to the fans, telling them what they're thinking, you know, why they're folding, why they're doing what they're doing, uh, and just connecting that mm. social connection we all desire, you know, you can use. And, and I haven't done much of that. Mm. Um, and we'll see, I'm doing this, this year, I'm doing a quest for 16. Finally, I'm going to send out some live con some content. I wouldn't say live during the world series of poker. So I'll have, there'll be a cameraman with me whenever I text them, basically 24 seven. Mm. So they'll catch me, you know, leaving my suite at the Aria. They'll catch me I go downstairs to a special area where they bring my car up. We're only a couple people in the planet they do that for. Okay. So it's behind the scene things are kind of fun, but what's more what's more fun is is, you know, going for a 16th world championship and if I make a deep run, we'll have a lot more content out and hopefully I'm at a final table, you know, um, so I think to come back to your basic question, poker's always going to be a little bit slow and that's just the way it's built. Mm. But uh, but I'm also going to agree with you that's it's nice when people like Negranu who are really fun to watch and connect with are doing live streams. What do you think of uh, what it has become to be a poker influencer, to be a poker pro, where it's like you know so many of these guys are, are streaming eight hours a day on Twitch and creating content, and there's there's tons of people who are doing crazy numbers, doing vlogs of their poker playing and everything like that, and you know you grew up just going and playing poker and then maybe one day somebody shows up with a camera and they film it or they film a certain tournament etc and the, the media is ma who makes you famous now it's kind of on you the biggest poker players are pretty much people who made themselves famous on youtube mr beast said it well you know he he works really hard this mm. is a guy that you know will work you know 360 days out of the year putting out these amazing contents thinking about his videos I love watching his videos. Um, Mr. Beast impressed all of my friends. We talked about, they talked about him on the All In podcast, which is a pretty good podcast. As YouTubers, we are all in awe of Mr. Beast. I mean, even everyone who does the same thing as him, I mean, his mentality, his attitude is like nobody else. I mean, I actually found myself the first night we played thinking, this guy's kind of like a saint. Mm. And I quit the first night we played. He beat me for 40,000 playing heads up. I would never quit uh, an amateur. You know, it was one thirty in the morning and I'm like, eh, you know, my family's in town and, you know, and so I just kind of quit and he beat me for 40,000 that night. But I also remember thinking the word saint crossed my mind just for a second there. Mm. He's really exceptional. But you're right. People can work hard these days. Um, I, I think that, you know, you look at Daniel Negreanu, uh, he's one of the hardest workers in poker. There's a reason he was paid so much by poker stars and all the other deals he's been involved with. This guy works, man. And he was flying all over the world, spending eight months a year traveling back in the day. And he, you know, he finally had enough of that. But it's a hardworking guy. Mm, definitely. But, you know, there, there are, do you 
feel attracted to doing a lot of those things that these newer, younger players do to make a name for themselves? Will we ever see a, a Phil Hellmuth vlog where you have you sort of wrapping up your, your most interesting hands of the day, talking to your iPhone in the corner of the casino? Or, or does that seem like, you know, the territory of the younger generation? So I signed a big contract with a company called Playmaker. Okay. I bought a piece of the company and I signed with them. So now I'm doing three videos a week for them. Right? Oh, okay. So one, I'm doing my NFL picks. Uh, which I've been very hot for a long time, so that's kind of doing well. Right. The other, I'm doing the NFL Bad Beats. And I love the Sports Center version of the Bad Beats, but it seems like they're always talking about some obscure game in Hawaii that nobody bet. Mm. My Bad Beat of the Week, everyone can relate to because San Francisco was up 24 points with less than two minutes, and the line was eight and a half. Right. You did two touchdowns and two two point conversions. So that was, you know, so I did a video for that. And then, and then in about three weeks, I'm gonna do Quest for 16, you know, where I'm gonna have some content that comes out daily. Well, probably daily, at least every other day, me behind the scenes, me talking about hands, me talking about, you know, and as I, and I, you know, that'll also build some hype for some of the runs. So that'll be kind of my vlog version of, what everybody else is doing. Do mm. you have much uh, attraction to streaming? Would you do it? Do you think it uh, I seems would do fun? it. I would, there will be a time and a place where it makes sense for me to stream. Right. I like streaming, mm. honestly. Um, we had this app, right? And I, the, the app had zero on it. And, and all, all that was on the app was a bunch of NBA stars and billionaires. Mm. And then I started streaming. And all of a sudden, we have 15,000 DAUs, right? Wow. Which is pretty cool. Um, but I also own 10% of that app. So it, it made sense for me. I was thinking that had to be coming. I'm like, there's no way you're giving up that much. <laughs> <laughs> but I also brought my Kimosabi Mezcal and would drink a shot of that on the stream on Twitch. Right. And then Twitch would also give me the front page. You know, I mean, people pay 25000 an hour for that. Right, okay. And they just give it to me because they wanted me to, because they thought, wow, Phil's going to be really good at this and he's going right. to be good for us. And so I brought a lot of people in to watch my streams. Kimosabi Mezcal is going public soon. So there's all these, you know, so for me, there's going to be a time soon. If I sign a massive deal with the site I'm talking about signing with, then it makes sense for me to stream those tournaments, hmm. you know, uh, live. Definitely. Do you feel like you would be giving anything up in that environment? Like, does it, does it, do you do things that you, like when you're playing privately that you maybe wouldn't want to do uh, on stream? There's a lot of people that think, okay, a lot of poker players think if I'm going to be on a TV show, then I need to be crazy so I'm invited to mm -hmm. cash games. That's their exact thought process. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm going to be me because the world wants to see that I can be great at this game. Right. I'm not going to intentionally lose a bunch of money. I'm not going to give a bunch of crazy action. I'm going to be me. And then my life's simplified. I can be me in the tournaments. I can be me in my high stakes cash games with my friends. I can be me everywhere I go. Charity tournaments, I try my hardest, mm. you know, when I'm, when I'm doing charity tournaments because the people at the table, they want to see me play my best. Mm. So I think I owe it to them, but I owe it to myself. Bad habits can start once you start getting too far away from your script. Mm. So yeah, for me, it's just, I'm always trying my hardest. You know what I like when I'm watching somebody on stream and I and they're usually pretty open about their strategy, but then I'll see them start looking at the other player's HUD. So they're looking at their stats and I can tell their brain is just cranking, drawing conclusions from the stats. But that's the thing they don't want to say because if they start talking about their reads on certain players, then that's much more exploitable and everything. So I like, I like seeing that, that they have that one thing that they would prefer exactly. to keep close to the chest. And they're smart because they see, wow, this guy's playing way too many hands. I'm going to start, 
moving in on him and right. three betting him more often, right? There's certain obvious stuff that occurs when you can actually see people's stats. Mm. Yeah, when I first uh, started working with a coach, that was, and they started just going through my poker tracker database. And I mean, I don't know if you've ever studied like this, but they're like, oh, like you're folding your small blind way too much. They put in these commands, like filter it this way, and then we're going to go through 200 hands in a row where you fold your small blind or you didn't defend your big blind or you didn't, uh, after the big blind isolates, you didn't call so much i mean i cannot believe how fast i learned so much in that environment because they were able to just pick apart the little things i was doing wrong so easily i you know it's interesting i read someone's book someone wanted me to you know bless their book or whatever you know endorse it on the back yeah, Sorry. yeah. <laughs> they wanted me to give the jacket blurb for their book and so i uh and so i read their book and i, I was like wow this is a really cool limit hold'em chapter mm. and it was a, talking about exactly that you need to get involved more often in the big blind and the small blind now in poker history i rarely folded a small blind so you know just the way i played um and then but i would have times where i would defend the big blind a lot and none at all mm. And then, you know, finally kind of realized none at all. You're just not getting, you're not giving yourself a chance to get lucky. Right. You know, if you have nine, five suited in the big blind and it's one guy's raised, sometimes it comes five, five, four, and the other guy has jacks and you get a full double. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, there's nothing that makes me feel less excited to play than when you're at a table full of people that just chop the blinds when it folds to them. Yeah. <laughs> is, is that as depressing for you? It just kinda, it's pretty depressing because it, it means one other thing too. It means that they're not gambling, and it means they know each other. Yeah. So if they know each other, they're probably pretty good. Right. And if they're not gambling, then the game. So that that knowing each other means they play a lot. That's bad for the game. The fact that they're chopping the blinds, which is annoying actually for me, yeah. is also bad for the game. So yeah, I don't like that either. Good mm. observation. No, thank you. I'm very very wise when it comes to these sort of things. Um, okay, so in terms of uh, everything you got going on, obviously you have a ton of different shit going on. I'm glad we got to talk a lot about uh, our wishes for the future of poker because I do feel like you know it, it's it's a great game that I, I I really feel like it'll survive forever regardless of the form just because there are so many people when you look at somebody like Mr. Beast who maybe didn't necessarily grow up on it. But it still just holds this really intrinsic appeal to somebody like him. I mean, I, I do feel like there's, it'll never really truly go away. I could see it mutating and changing a lot. I could definitely see other games becoming uh, more and more popular over time. But, yeah, I, I definitely just feel like poker has a strong future regardless. Absolutely. We're going to have a big future. Yeah, I do think the pot limit Omaha has become more popular because you can play more hands. So maybe you can play 18% of the hands and get away with it. Or Right. So, that I game mean, is a fucking bloodbath. I watch people <laughs> play it on stream, and I'm like, why would you do this to yourself, man? This is, uh, this is insane. There's never been a game where you're going to just go like, I mean, you, this is built into the game. Yeah. Right? This is built into pot limit Omaha. And so I haven't had the nerve to really actually try to like learn it well enough to play yeah. it. I just watch other people play it, and I'm like, like, I don't know if I, my soul can handle this, dude. Poker's in great shape. Uh, we see it again from all the numbers from all the guys that are playing the 200s and hitting mm -hmm. million guarantees. So I think it's going to be healthy for a long time. And I look forward to, you know, every state, you know, finally, you know, having poker legalized and, and, and the super boom that's going to come when that happens. The super boom. I'm going to be thinking about that now for sure and, and, and really hoping and praying that that comes along. Yeah, because you want to play in a $200 buy-in tournament at your house. For sure. And if you get lucky, you win a million dollars. There we go. That's amazing. That would be incredible.
Do you like playing bounty tournaments? Uh, I, Have you done it much? Not as much. Not okay. as much. You haven't I spent mean, much time thinking about it? They have that really one. fucking changes everything. Oh, my God. It does, right? <laughs> like, I mean, you're like, wait, I can't call. Wait a minute. If I knock him out, I get a bounty. I have to call. Right. Yeah, it does change. Yeah, I, I do like thinking about the way strategies change. Mm. To me, that's really fun and interesting, right? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, we always had the Bay 101 where a guy like me has a $5,000 bounty on him. Mm. Well, yeah, that's that's a little different, right? Yeah, <laughs> right now they now have to call everything from you. Yeah. Now they're calling Superlight all the time, and you know, uh, you, you end up taking a lot of bad beats. Yeah, no, I remember uh, I hadn't played poker for like ten years, uh, from like 2009 to like 2019, and I just randomly thought to myself, "We got you back now." I'm fully back now. Yeah, yeah. But I remember I it occurred to me one day. I just thought you know what, I bet there's amazing poker shit going on with Twitch. So I, I go on YouTube and I search up some some compilations and like one of the first tables, the final tables I saw, it was like mega ICM spots where you have like, you know, two two players with one big blind and, and that just absolutely changes how everybody has to play. And it was bounties. And I'm sitting there watching it and it's like my mind is melting because I spent so much time <laughs> studying poker in the early 2000s. And it was just so obvious to me. There's so much different shit going on. And that, that ever since then, I've just been like fully reinvested and just trying to learn as much as possible. Yeah. I also think that I also think that people that have uh, good minds and, and are good at strategic thinking are going to do well in poker in the long run. Mm, for sure. Um, any words that you want to uh, send to the people out there, all the Phil Helmuth fans who uh, are, are just encountering this, as well as the poker diehards who probably watched 10 other interviews you did this month? I will say this. Yeah, there's been a lot of that. But Adam, <laughs> I've really enjoyed this. It was very thoughtful. You had some really great questions, and I could see you, I could see you kind of assimilating stuff as we were talking. I appreciated that, and so it's really, it's really fun. Uh, and I like I think- a man who's a good judge of interviewers. Because that's not often. Oh, I'm a good judge because I said you're good. Right. Well, I mean, I think your 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 reasons <laughs> that you said it was good were good. So. <laughs> good uh, enough. Good enough. Appreciate that. Uh, I just want to say, yeah, I, I do love my book, and I've mm. changed a lot of lives with it. You know, Cheryl Sandberg gave me a jacket blurb. Tony Robbins, an amazing jacket. They both loved it. I put Draymond Green on here. Wow. Um, but anyway, yeah, that's my full logo there, the little PH. Nice. And uh, you know, I wanted to talk about this because I can change a lot of people's lives. I mm. think, but. But I'm good, and I want to say uh, this, the snow jumper has been a lot of fun. Yeah, man, for sure. Um, it, when you say that you have the iconic PH for your logo, that makes me think of another famous PH that you might sometimes get confused with. Planet Hollywood? Pornhub? No. Oh. Okay. <laughs> um. <laughs> I've got the PH logo on the back. That's the chip logo. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, that's a little different than the Pornhub logo. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, man, it was great having a conversation. Very happy to have met you. Uh, it was a real honor. You have you have multiple copies of this book. You got one I can snag. Uh, this is for you. Oh, amazing! My girl is it, a but... real sucker for for anything uh, positivity related. But I'm definitely going to read this as well. So it, it'll definitely uh, get some use out of it, man. I did. I did a podcast, and uh, it was with Jordan. Oh, sh- I'm so bad with names. He has a really big podcast, and his uh, his wife showed up, and she was filming. And she was just um, a massive fan of the positivity and the book and really believed. And it made me feel good. You know, it makes me feel good because these tips, um, which this book takes 70 minutes to read there, I think they're going to help everybody, mm-hmm. you know. And so some stuff you already know, uh, but there's some new stuff. And then I think of it. This is a really weird way to like I think of the truth as being this kind of amorphous 
blob right here shaping and and then tony robbins comes from this angle mm. you know and i come from this angle hopefully i have a lot of truth and you know a lot of great thinkers come from different angles but when you listen to them talk you're like wait that makes sense so i think i think coming at you know uh, so uh, that's why i'm proud of this book i think i'm sharing a lot of truth and 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 hopefully can can help you know, I'd, I'd like to help hundreds of millions of people. I'd like it if people read this book in a hundred years. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, when you think about the average poker player, I think that they devote a big chunk of their life to poker, and then ultimately they don't feel fully satisfied by just playing the game because you know it's it's just not you're not contributing as much to the world. So a lot of poker players, you see them sort of left with this impetus to you know contribute more, and it's it's pretty cool seeing you. Uh, expanding your your value to the world so far outside of just poker it's very interesting we you know uh we have this we have this i have this thing where um by not cheating on my wife by raising 66 million dollars for charity tournaments by basically being ethically and morally perfect and being by being a really good guy taking all the pictures signing all the autographs that gives me entitlement. Mm. Right now, entitlement's a bad word in society. Ten years ago, it was a good one, whatever. <laughs> entitlement to win more. So now, when I'm at a final table and I'm about to win another bracelet, it's a bit of a mind fuck, right? Because mm. I'm the all-time bracelet. It's a mind fuck for everybody. You, you stare at yourself, and you can't help but think at this eight hours, do I deserve to win this bracelet? Mm. You know. And then I say, well, you've lived your life perfectly over here, or you know, as perfectly as you can. And so then... So then, why not me? Why shouldn't I win my 15th world championship bracelet? And, you know, it's, it's so, I mean, I think, I think there is a power in, in doing things by whatever your moral code is. And you might not have the same moral code as me. That's mm. okay, too. You know, there are people that their moral code is they can be with 8 million women and their wives are okay with that. Mm. That's fine. You know, I, I'm just kind of goofy. My moral code's different. So... Following your moral code, uh, you know, um, and, and doing the right things every day leads to a nice sense of entitlement. Mm, I like it. Phil Hamith, appreciate you, man. A lot of fun. Appreciate you so much. The legend himself, Phil Hamith, No Jumper, coolest podcast in the world. Check us out on YouTube, Patreon, all that. Like, comment, subscribe, nojumper.com if you want to support. And uh, keep your eyes peeled for Positivity by Phil Hamith. Thanks, man.